Is it me? Yeah. Um, Silver Chair here on Alternative Nation on the way. I've already read this. You're doing Ooh. it again. Oh, you're so dumb. <laughs> Red to fighters. Oh. Okay. Go. Me too. Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, I'll be revisiting a song from an early Silverchair album. Today, it's Pure Massacre from 1995's Frog Stomp. That's right, just like my episode on Abuse Me earlier, is it this year? It's hard to keep up. I wanted to take a deeper look at Pure Massacre from a songwriting perspective, from a performance and production perspective, and also to see whether we could find hints of the later Silverchair in this early track. But before we get to that, just some quick housekeeping. As always, thank you to everyone who has been listening and supporting the show, especially during this current fallow period. If you haven't yet, ranking and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts really does help get the word out, uh, as does just telling people about it. I'm on Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook.com slash Silverchair Podcast, and my email is silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're looking for a podcast host, check out the Buzzsprout affiliate link in the episode description. I also still have my Patreon, and I'm super grateful for all my patrons who have put up with me not doing much over the last few months. One thing they get is their name read out in an episode, so at time of recording, I want to give a sincere thanks to new patrons Gustav Zukowski, Olivia Bourdais, and Chase Bailey. Thank you. In addition to Patreon, I still have my PayPal link if you do want to make a one-off donation as well. Be very kind of you. Okay, let's go all the way back to 1995 and talk Pure Massacre. Pure Massacre was the first true single from Frog Stomp released in Australia. In the US, of course, the first single was the Frog Stomp version of Tomorrow. But since the version of Tomorrow on the album wasn't released in Australia as a single, because it had already been released with the original Tomorrow EP, Pure Massacre was the first true impression Australian fans got of Frog Stomp. Like its predecessor Tomorrow, Pure Massacre reached number two on the ARIA chart, kept out of the top spot by Zombie by the Cranberries. Already you could see the levelling up in songwriting from the Tomorrow EP, and that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. 
So back in those days, how was Silverchair writing songs back in this early Frog Stomp era? Me and Ben just come up with a song, like a riff on a guitar or something, and then we'll just jam to that for a while and think of other ideas and just combine it and make it into a song. And then we'll just arrange it, um, just arrange it properly, and then I'll just write the lyrics, and then we'll get into Ben's garage one time and just jam around to it, see if we can improve it. Pure Massacre is in the key of D minor, which is handy because it's also played in drop D tuning, which gives the whole song that D tonality. It's also, to quote Spinal Tap, the saddest key. So on guitar, Pure Massacre is played with drop D tuning, where the lowest string is tuned down one whole step from E to D, which, as you probably know, creates that heavier sound and makes power chords a one-finger proposition. As with most drop D songs, there's a droning pedal tone quality to the open D strings, and in Pure Massacre, this is used to great effect starting with the intro to the song. The opening riff to Pure Massacre is a nice little four note figure that features the open D string ringing throughout. The high open D string is complemented by notes that alternately imply the D power chord, then a tritone, then the augmented sixth or minor seventh. Ben's toms in the intro really drive the song forward. That intro guitar riff is just going back and forth, but Ben's drumming really pummels it to feel, like I've said a lot of times about Ben's drumming, propulsive. The vocal melody in this part largely follows the same notes in that riff and the same intervals. thing the vocal melody doesn't follow is that tritone where Daniel plays the open D against the G sharp A flat. And this is in fact I think the only accidental note in the song. But Daniel does sing a tritone at the end of that phrase where he says if you're large or small then his little ad lib going up to the F sharp and then back to the C is a tritone. When we get to the for no reason at all part, we get a really cool minor sixth interval, which creates a minor third harmony with that ringing open D string. After the second repetition of this vocal line, Daniel does a cool ad lib where he goes up after the large or small to the higher F sharp and then slides back to the C. Then we hit that main heavy riff, big block chords. D, F, D, F, D, C, D, F, D, F, G, A. Minor third, minor third, fourth, minor third, minor third. This riff and its chords become the building blocks for the rest of the song. In fact, we've already heard a version of this progression because the intro riff is very similar. 
apart from the tritone that we mentioned, the intro riff is really just jamming on that D power chord. In fact, you can map the intro riff onto the main heavy riff. So we get the heavy riff for eight bars, and then we get a verse, except this basically has a different vocal melody entirely. They follow the same outline, the way the notes rise and fall, but the notes are different. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. It's actually pretty sophisticated, which is a word that I'm probably going to keep using about this song. Arrangement-wise, this is all pretty sophisticated too. After the eight bars of just the heavy riff, the heavy guitar drops out while Chris keeps playing the heavy riff, which is awesome and prominent in the mix. Chris's bass on this song is really great, even though he's largely just playing what Daniel plays while Ben holds a standard but tight 4-4 rock pattern. They're already breaking down that main riff. Remember how I said you can map the intro riff onto the heavy riff? Well, Silverchair already knew that too, because in this part of the song, they actually play them against each other. What Daniel is playing while Chris and Ben are doing their thing is a distorted version of the intro riff. Now, once we hit the second phrase in the verse, some people just have no heart, Daniel switches from that intro riff to the main heavy riff that Chris is already playing. It really gives that section extra oomph, almost like the sudden heavy guitar is responding to the lyric. Accidental text painting. The vocal melody in this part, against the heavy lyric, by the way, is based more around returning to the F note, which is a good note to keep returning to, partly because F major is the relative major to this song's D minor. In fact, I started writing this episode with the premise that this song was in F major because I'm a dum-dum when it comes to music theory, and I didn't notice at first that F major and D minor have the same notes, if you ever want to know how good I am at music theory. Uh, But it's also a good note to return to because with the movement in the heavy riff, the melody is alternating between reiterating that F power chord, creating an octave harmony, and creating a minor third harmony with that open D power chord. Not that you can really hear that happening because the riff creates a great sense of movement. It's just nice to know that when you look at what the notes are actually doing against the chords, they do work harmonically if you slowed it all down. The vocal melodies in all sections of this song are quite simple, but Daniel's delivery, even this early on, was compelling. Much more confident and assured than the Tomorrow EP. And from a songwriting perspective, he was choosing notes in a melody that were the right ones, and the ones that resonated with people. He just had an ear for a hook. Even though this was the era where he was saying things in interviews like, most of our songs aren't very commercial, as he told Smash Hits magazine in early 1995, he couldn't help but write a catchy melody. Speaking of catchy melodies, next up is the chorus.
chord progression in the chorus does the same trick as the main heavy riff, where each chord passes through an open drop D power chord. So... Daniel sings pure massacre, and the mass is an F note against an F power chord, the root note. The second time he sings it though, mass is a high G against a B flat power chord, briefly creating a minor third harmony. Which, come to think of it, are the same harmonies created in the verse melody, an F octave and a minor third. Nice. But again, the movement of that chord progression makes your ear not really pick all this up. Let's talk about that B-flat power chord. It's the first time the song uses it, which makes the chorus stand out sonically, especially considering the rest of the chorus chord progression are the same chords in that main heavy riff. It makes the chorus hit harder, makes the chord hit harder, it pricks your ears up. Ooh, a little change. That's something this song does really well, using the same chords in slightly different combinations to really get the most out of them. Now after that first chorus phrase, the band returns to the intro verse riff, before another round of Pure Massacre, Pure Massacre. Going to the verse riff midway through the chorus is a surprisingly, yep, sophisticated songwriting technique. The band already knew that those riffs all fit together in different combinations. Sometimes when something is quite simple, you can use it in a variety of ways to create new, slightly delightful sonic surprises. Okay, let's talk the second verse of Pure Massacre. The second verse, or at least the second time we've had a verse over this main heavy riff, operates in pretty much the same way as the first. But I will point out that the verse vocal melody has a different rhythm to that main heavy riff. So, unlike some of the tracks on Frog Stomp, I'm thinking here of Israel Sun, the vocals don't directly follow the riffs. This is a small thing of course, but at the age they were when they were writing this song, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to not think about having a different melody or rhythm for these sections. It's very easy, especially when you're 15 and your ear isn't as developed, to just sing whatever the riff's doing. I know that's what I did in my band when I was 15. It just takes a while to develop that skill of not just singing what you're already hearing in another instrument. Remember, Daniel and Ben are the only credited writers on Frog Stomp. I'm sure producer Kevin Shirley helped a bit with arranging things, but from everything I've read, he was very keen to capture them as they were, really raw and honest. He didn't want to get in the way of that magical dynamic that the band already had. And if I ever get Kevin Shirley on the show, I'll definitely be asking him about this. Now we get to the second chorus. Basically the same as the first chorus, but this time around the chorus ends differently. Daniel holds the note at the end of Massacre, and then he ad-libs, all right. Next we get to the bridge. 
And you can hear a different tone to the guitar, a scratchiness almost, because for the first time, Daniel is playing these chords with different voicings. He's not using the drop D power chord version of these chords, even though we've heard all these same chords before. He switches to mainly using chord positions that don't need the drop D string, so it sounds lighter, a subtle way of making this part sound different. It doesn't sound as heavy, it's more soaring. Actual chords in this section are the root notes of the main heavy riff, D, B flat, C, and G, but played differently and rearranged. They get a lot of mileage out of these three or four chords. And this bridge also features that B flat power chord that previously only occurred in the chorus. It's this chord. But when Daniel plays it during the bridge, he plays it in the 1st fret position rather than the drop D 8th fret position. Which, if you're like me and think chord voicings matter, you can actually hear. The vocal melody here in the bridge mostly hovers around a few close notes, the F and the E predominantly, the 5th of the B flat chord and the 3rd of the C chord. relative lack of movement in the melody is why this bridge section is also the only time in the song Daniel's voice gets a vocal harmony layered on top. There's a harmony singing a third above the main line here. Something Daniel would become expert at as his songwriting developed is creating third parts of songs that build from the verses and choruses, but are very distinct. Possibly this comes from not wanting to do guitar solos, which he hated doing, especially as if it's just a matter of course if the song didn't require it. After the bridge, the song goes back to that main heavy riff, but Daniel supplements it with a high octave harmony on the guitar and an ad-lib vocal, yeah. This brings us into the third heavy riff verse. It repeats the Machine Gun's pumping lyrics of the second verse, but this time the arrangement is more sparse. Ben starts this section with a belter of a drum pattern, and Chris keeps that steady main riff going. But this time Daniel's guitar is buried low in the mix, and it's the clean version of the intro riff underneath again. I 
actually love the little string rake or string mute at this part, just before his vocals come in. This is the band breaking down the song for this final verse, just so they can build it back up for the final chorus. It's really good songwriting to make each repetition of something sound different. Silverchair were very good at this, as I hope my album episodes have demonstrated. This third verse vocal is approached quite differently to the first two. Daniel sounds more angry in the delivery, especially when we get to death is all around, no one hears a sound. It goes to a higher melody instead of back down with an ad lib, no one hears a sound cry. Not only that, listen to Ben's drums. I don't know if I ever picked up that he's using double kicks here. He loves it. He didn't get to use them all that much on record. I think he snuck them in a bit more when they played live, but as a disciple of John Bonham, he knew how to use them tastefully. And his work here with the toms and the kick drums is really great. It has to be like the eighth time we've heard this riff, but he changes up the drums to make it sound different. And then there's Daniel with a pained ad libby vocal take on the verse that we've already heard, but this time, people crying for freedom, no one hears a sound, is genuinely pained. Now we know this was really Daniel sort of aping that rock star sound, and he probably didn't genuinely have anger about the vague wartime situation the song's about, but you can imagine that he was able to get into that mindset, emotionally anyway, of someone who was crying out but not being heard. Or maybe that's just putting what we know of his life later on onto a song that came much earlier. Final chorus, another vocal ad lib, and then another long massacre, and then it's it's gonna be a pure massacre as the octave harmony comes back in. The final chords in the song are the interlude chords, the bridge chords. So you hear a different voicing of the chords you've been hearing all along as the final two bars of the song, sending you out with a tiny little surprise ending. It's quite, and here's that word again, sophisticated. Remember, these guys were like 14 or 15 when this album was being recorded. Now, I'm not saying they didn't have production and maybe even arrangement help from Frog Stomp producer Kevin Caveman Shirley. Uh, Daniel's liner notes for this song from the Apple Music 20th Anniversary Edition of Frog Stomp are brief, but he does hint that Caveman was a particular help with this song. And I quote, That was one of the ones we really focused on when we knew that we were making a record, when we were in pre-production with Kevin Shirley. I remember him helping us flesh that out and turn it into a song rather than just like four riffs in a row. I remember him being quite helpful with that one, and I think the American record company liked it as a single. End quote. We recorded like a song in the morning, then the afternoon we'd just get lunch and play Seeger or something, play video games, and then um, when it got like later into the evening, we'd record like a song or two after that. So each day we'd record like one or two songs. 
So that was how it worked, and then we just did the vocal tracks after we got all the music down. For as sophisticated as some of the musical songwriting could be this early on, that wasn't really the case when it came to lyrics. Music is like that. The notes themselves can be magical, floating around in the air and ageless, but words are more concrete. They always give away something. And the lyrics to Pure Massacre, like most of the lyrics on Frog Stomp, show an immaturity, or at least an attempt at maturity, that ironically only goes to show that, only being 15, Daniel did not have the life experience or means to communicate what he wanted to. And that's fine. In fact, if you asked him back then, he probably would have said, lyrics come last and they don't really matter as much as those rocking riffs. In fact, when he did get asked what his lyrics were about back then, even ones that seemed to have a fairly straightforward topic, he would often shy away. It was hard enough writing lyrics, let alone being asked to explain them. But despite all of that, let's have a look at the lyrics anyway. In 1995, Daniel told Smash Hits magazine that Pure Massacre was about war. He saw something on TV about war, but wasn't sure which conflict it was. Quote, I think it was that Bosnia thing. This is one of the reasons that John Watson and John O'Donnell didn't want the band to do too many interviews. At 15, Daniel felt that war was bad, like his heroes in Black Sabbath and their song War Pigs, but he couldn't quite get into anything more specific than that. Well, that's not quite true. Daniel did explain a bit further to Billboard magazine that, quote, it's pretty stupid war like that. So it seemed the right thing to write a song about rather than the usual girls or whatever. It took about half an hour. It came straight to my head. This is actually a relatively important point. (laughs) It didn't take very long for Daniel to write lyrics back then. In fact, he used to write his lyrics quite quickly until we get to the Neon Borum era. The phrase pure massacre itself has always fascinated me. Why is it pure? I could try and analyze it along the lines of, well, the Bosnian conflict was in part about ethnic cleansing, so there's the killing of non-pure people, but that's not taking the context into consideration. My most lateral guess is that Daniel, watching the news story about the war on TV, heard the TV journalist use a phrase like, it was a pure massacre, and that's as good an explanation as you're likely to get. As for the rest of the lyrics, I'm not sure how much else there is to analyse. The first verse is a rhyming couplet, rhyming all and small. Then when we get to the main verse riff, it becomes an A-B-A-B structure. Torn apart, this way, no heart, every day. After the chorus, the main riff actually goes back to a rhyming couplet. Machine guns pumping, hearts thumping. I have to say that's not the best rhyme I've ever heard. When I come across an awkward rhyme like that, I try to think about which rhyme came first. I think in this case, it's probably machine guns pumping, but the whole couplet is is quite basic. The next bit is death is all around, people crying for freedom, no one hears a sound. So it's actually different from the first verse because we start with a couplet and then move into a A, B, A, B rhyme scheme, except that first A is actually a couplet. I'm sure there are people into poetry who could probably express that better than me, but I think you get what I mean. The bridge lyrics are, again, a couplet, people crying, people dying. Um, I'm not sure if the repetition of people crying in the second verse and in the bridge is redundant or repeated for effect. I tend to think they didn't notice, but I could be wrong. I do like that the final line of the bridge doesn't have a rhyme, but someone's taken it all, so it actually does stand out. 
I guess what's notable about the lyrics as a whole is how much rhyming there is. As we know, moving forward, Daniel would use fewer and fewer rhymes in his songs to the point where there aren't very many at all by the last couple of albums. Now, when they played this song live, in the early days anyway, they used to play a little intro song to lead into it, which is supposedly titled Fat Donuts. I guess that comes from a set list someone found. I'm not actually sure the provenance of that title. also would do a kind of extended jam in between the bridge and the final choruses where they broke the song down further and Daniel would do a little bluesy guitar solo and then the band would completely drop out for the no one hears a sound part before Ben machine guns the band back in. It's actually quite effective if you see early gigs from this era. later eras of live shows, I'm thinking of the Neon Ballroom Tour specifically, which was really the last time Pure Massacre was in a set list, aside from the one-off Rock in Rio performance, Daniel would add in his third and fourth fingers to the drop D chords, so he was essentially creating sus chords and then moving that shape up and down the fretboard. It's actually the same chord shape that he uses in Tomorrow, in fact, but using it with a drop D creates, for example, a G sus2 chord as the first chord in the chorus. I assume Daniel did this to keep things sounding a bit fresher. I'm sure he got sick of the same drop D block chords after a while. Probably coincidentally, but Kurt Cobain uses this kind of chord shape in drop D in the Nirvana song On a Plane. And actually, throughout Silverchair's live shows, Daniel would do things like this to spice things up in the older songs. Freak was a song that they always performed right up until the end, and he was always adding extra suspended notes and whatnot to that main riff. But I think that's talk for another episode. So that is my Pure Massacre breakdown, my revisit to an earlier track in Silverchair's career. Let me know what you think of the format, if you like it, or if you would prefer a longer album-based episode instead. I'm probably going to still keep doing these though. As always, stay in touch, rate, review, subscribe, check out the Patreon, and I'll hopefully see you soon. (laughs) 
This podcast is written, produced, and performed by me, Daniel Hedger. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends or your enemies if they like Silverchair. Rate, review, subscribe, follow me on social media, email me, you know all that. All music is by Silverchair, owned by Sony now. I believe all music is being used with a fair use exemption for criticism as per copyright.com.au slash about copyright slash exceptions. Yeah.